This is an ABC podcast. When you're 20, you don't know the plot. At least when you're 39, you know some of the plot. And when you're 83, you know most of the plot. Hi, I'm Claire Nichols, and this is The Book Show, where we are celebrating this year's Booker Prize with a look back to conversations with recent winners of the award. In 2019, Margaret Atwood won the Booker for a second time for The Testaments, the sequel to her most famous novel, The Handmaid's Tale. She spoke to Lee Sales from ABC's 7.30 about The Testaments in that same year. So I am interested in, in who gets to say, you know, who, who gets to make the laws, who doesn't get to make the laws. So it's, it's not a given that women will work in the interests of, of women. Um, and so it is in, in Gilead, but any, any group um, oppressing, imperializing, ruling over another group usually um, raises an army of controllers or a group of controllers from within that group. Why? It's cheaper, easier, and it works better. The Testaments explores how the character of Aunt Lydia becomes one of the top female power brokers in Gilead. How long have you had the idea of taking her character further? I started thinking about the book probably in about 2015 and that stage is always, am I going to do this, am I not going to do this? And I note that I um, wrote a note to my publishers in February of 2017 saying, this is the book. So in the Testaments, I was interested in a couple of things, how she got that way, and also how regimes crumble, how regimes like that fall apart. You turn 80 in November. When you survey the landscape of your life from here, does it feel like, looking back, that it had a plot? Or does a lifetime feel like a series of random and chance events just strung into a line? Both. <laughs> when you look back at anything, you always see a plot. <laughs> and let's hear some more of that plot now. I spoke to Margaret this year after the release of her most recent work of short stories, Old Babes in the Woods. At this point, you've published more than 50 books of fiction and poetry and essays. Is writing something that you have to do? Well, I could make an effort of will to not do it. So I wouldn't say I, I had to do it. It's something I, I do do. Mavis Gallant used to tell the story about how once you'd been doing it for, for a while, you don't have any other choices because it's the only thing you do know how to do. And Samuel Beckett, when asked why he was a writer, said, not good for anything else. <laughs> and that becomes true after a while. I mean, I, I could have been a I could have been a ballet dancer, actually, that's not true, but um, after a while, it is what you do. You're here because you've just published your first work of new fiction since the Testaments. It's called Old Babes in the Wood. It's a short story collection. and at either end of the book, there is a really wonderful sequence of stories about an ageing couple called Nell and Tig. 
Uh, can you introduce us to this couple? Who are Nell and Tig? Who are Nell and Tig? Well, I think you're going to have to read the stories to find that out, but is it autofiction is what you're really asking. And the answer to that would be very close to it. So, uh, so yes, and you'll notice that the book is dedicated to Graham Gibson. His mother was Australian, and hello to all the Australian rallies who were still there in Australia. So yes, they're they're fairly close to some some things that happened in our life, but of course, fiction is involves um, limitation, and so does this kind of fiction. You don't put everything in. We learn in the stories that uh, Tig has recently died. Um, these stories are often about Nell working through her grief and her memories, um, her ongoing love for this man. Um, you lost your Graham Gibson in 2019. How much of your own love and, and grief found its way into these stories, Margaret? That's a numerical question. It's, it's extremely hard to calculate. <laughs> Uh, but we did go to Australia in, in 2019 because Graham really wanted to. He wanted to go to Australia again, and he wanted to um, go on a ship. So I did manage to arrange that. We went on the Queen Victoria, and then we went to Brisbane after that. So we did manage to do that trip, and it was really uh, pretty good. So we did know that Graham was going to die fairly soon. So we did a number of things in the last year or so that he really wanted to do, and that was one of them. And you were already, I mean, he had a long illness. You were already saying goodbye. You wrote a collection of poetry um, in which there were poems there where you were already kind of in the grieving process, right? Well, we knew this was going to happen. Uh, so he got his diagnosis in 2012 at his own instigation. He said, there's something's not right. And, of course, people said, as they always do, oh, don't be silly. But, of course, he was right. And then it was just a question of time. And he said in 2012 to the doctor, so what's the prognosis? And they said, well, either it will go quickly or it will go slowly or it will stay the same or we don't know. Really helpful, mm, mm. but quite accurate because you don't know what these things as anybody who's gone through them will tell you. Yeah. There's another story uh, earlier where Nell is mourning the death of a beloved cat, Smudgy. In her grief, she's rewriting Tennyson's Mort Arthur um, with the late it, cat. As, it deserve, as it deserves to be rewritten featuring <laughs> cats, don't you think? With the cat in the lead role. Um, this is such a silly kind of idea, but from her perspective, um, but so moving at the same time. Can you tell me a little bit about where this story came from, Margaret? Okay, so once upon a time I was a Victorianist, so I know my Tennyson very well. And if there was one thing the Victorians were good at, it was death. And one reason they were so good at it was that so many of them died, uh, really a whole bunch, and a lot of them died young. So, and Tennyson, I would say, is top of the heap when it comes to um, making you cry. He's got a lot of real weepers. Uh, so this is um, 
he did two versions of this. One is in, one is the earlier Mort d'Arthur, in which King Arthur is dying and Sir Bedivere is cheating on throwing the sword into the lake, and um, they work through that and. He gets down to the shore and this barge with stately queens on it comes and picks him up to take him off to the to the Isle of Avilion where he will be healed, maybe. We don't know. Uh, so it's very it's very poignant and was quite an influence on people like Ezra Pound, just for instance, and T. S. Eliot as far as that goes. So yes, so here we have um, now rewriting the Mort d'Arthur, not the more optimistic second version, which is in Idols of the King. And all of the people in it are cats. <laughs> so they're mourning the death of Smudgy, who is, of course, the Arthur figure. As as he should be. I mean, it just points to the playfulness in this book. In the middle section, um, we move away from Nell and Tig, and there's a real riot of various stories. There's one about a reincarnated snail. There's an alien storyteller. Uh, there's even the transcript of an imagined interview between Margaret Atwood and the spirit of George Orwell. I I'm interested in your process here, Margaret. I, I can imagine you coming up with an idea that tickles your funny bone, but when do you know it's actually going to work as a story? Well, some of these were asks. So by asks, I mean that somebody asks you with with a request. And the interview um, with George Orwell was is part of a series called The Dead Interview in a magazine called Inc., I-N-Q-U-E, in which living writers are asked to pick any dead writer of their choice and interview them. So who could resist? And why would it be Orwell? Well, it would be Orwell because he was such an influence on my young life. Number one, he ruined me with Animal Farm because I thought it was going to be a fun story about animals like Wind in the Willows, <laughs> and it wasn't. <laughs> And of course, at that age, I had no idea. Again, this is about Stalin and Trotsky. Who were they? I didn't know. Um, so I was very wiped out by the death of the horse, which I once read on Australian radio and made everybody cry. It's it's very upsetting. And then, of course, he came out with 1984, and I was just an early teen when that appeared first on the planet in North America with a very lurid paperback cover because it was the age of lurid paperback covers. And naturally, I read it as soon as I could get my hands on it and was deeply impressed by it. That's why him, and you'll, you'll be happy to know because he was a devoted smoker, he's allowed to smoke in the afterlife. And you can smell it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can hear him coughing. <laughs> uh, 1984 uh, was the year you started Handmaid's Tale as well, right? Yes, I know. It wasn't that corny. Yeah. yeah, it was a very, very corny thing to have done, but 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 how could it be avoided? <laughs> um, you've... You've been writing about women and women's stories, women's issues for such a long time, Margaret. Um, in one of the stories in this book, a, a writer character says, if you publish a book and you've got a C-word body part, you're a hate magnet. Uh, do you believe this? Well, I think you should um, 
ask some younger women writers. Uh, the internet has facilitated an awful lot of online abuse, partly because people can do it anonymously. But it used to come in the form of um, letters. You would get a letter with some of the parts in red and blue colored pencil, capital letters and underlined, and you would know immediately that this was from some raging nut. Um, but all, but it takes place online now, and a lot of it is directed at female journalists and younger female writers. Not so much me, because I'm not only the granny generation, I'm practically the great-granny generation. So quite frankly, there's not as much interest in demolishing me. Those letters you got back in the day with the, the red and blue pencil and the underlines, did, did they ever get to you? No. Uh, no, they didn't because, well, you, you just think this is a person who's very unhappy in their life and um, possibly has some mental health issues. The middle section of uh, Old Babes in the Wood features a lot of stories about I guess you might call them unruly women. There's witches, feminists, academics, and a lot of ageing women. Uh, one character, Lynn, tells us, you don't have to hold your stomach in anymore. You can make six kinds of fool of yourself because you're just a fool for being old. You're off the hook for almost everything. Um, Margaret Atwood, I hope it's okay to say that you're 83 years old. Uh, how much liberation is there in ageing? Well, think of all the things you don't have to do anymore. And I've just mentioned a few of them. Um, how old are you? I am 39. Oh, you're just on the cusp of having more fun. <laughs> I'm really excited about it. <laughs> I just told someone the other day I'm looking forward to moving into my 40s and, I don't know, wearing clothes that are just really crazy and unflattering and just kind of make me happy. That's what I'm excited about. Yes, and you should be excited about it, and, and it only gets better from there. So I, I think being being a young person is, is really anxiety-producing, and I think even more so than it was when I was those ages, there's a lot more pressure and um, a lot more self-imposed expectation that you have to somehow be perfect or you have to be... Um, beautiful, successful, enviable, all of these things that get projected. You used to encounter that only in, in newspaper ads and maybe in, in movies, but uh, it seems to be everywhere now, and I think it's just a huge amount of pressure, and it, it makes people depressed. Plus, when you're 20, you don't know the plot. At least when you're mm. 39, you know some of the plot. And when you're 83, you know most of the plot. So there isn't so much suspense. I'd love to talk about the story, My Evil Mother. Um, we meet a suburban mother in the 1950s. She's in her shirt dress and her pearls, but she also reads tarot cards. She concocts strange potions from herbs in her backyard, and she can um, chill her daughter with just the threat of pointing her finger. Um, she's I think kind of equally terrifying and loving. Um, what excited you about this character, Margaret? Well, once upon a time, a long, long time ago, when I was at graduate school at Harvard, 
I was not allowed to go into the Lamont Library there where all the modern poetry was because I was female. So as a compensation, I went down into the Stacks and Widener Library where there was an extensive collection of witchcraft and demonology. So the information that you're getting about witches um, in the story is, is all based on stuff that people used to think about witches. What excited me about the story? Once upon a time, fairly recently, I was out in front of my house sweeping the leaves up in October. And my next-door neighbor, Sam, a character, came out and said to me, Margaret, you shouldn't be doing that. And I said, what do you mean, Sam? He said, it's the broom. I said, Sam, whatever are you talking about? And he said, well, Margaret, you know they call you the Wicked Witch of the Annex. I said, Sam, fear inspires more respect than love. He said, Margaret, you're right. So that's the backstory. And I love it because she's consulted her tarot cards and she tells the daughter she has to break up with her boyfriend. If she doesn't break up with the boyfriend, he will die in a car crash. I mean, this is next level parental manipulation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. An, an interesting technique. <laughs> it works, though. Well, it works in the story. I'm not so sure it would work in real life. <laughs> Uh, Margaret Atwood, you're still probably best known for The Handmaid's Tale. Um, this book will be 40 years old um, very soon. It still seems to frighten some people. Um, just a couple of weeks ago at a school in Madison County in Virginia, um, the board voted to ban any book with so-called sexually explicit content, and The Handmaid's Tale was one of those books. Um, do you really think it's the sex in this book that people are worried about? No, um, I don't. But I, I wrote a piece about this in The Atlantic, which you can find, in which I, I addressed the school board and um, run, them, run them through their possible objections. But, but this is by no means the first time that this has happened to this particular book. It's a fairly regular occurrence. Does it get tiresome? Well, you know, if they're going to ban stuff, they're going to have to do the Bible because there's a lot of sex and violence in it. They never seem to get around to that. In Israel recently, um, people have been protesting in that iconic red handmade costume. Um, they've been protesting against a judicial reform plan that they believe could erode women's rights in the country. But I again, think it this... could erode uh, democratic rights in the country. Yeah, Um this costume has been used so many times for protest again and again. What does it feel like to see something that you you imagined um, used for so many years as a symbol of protest? Well, the reason that it is used that way is that we live in an age of um, television and videos. In other words, it's a visual symbol and people can look at it and see immediately what it means. And women dress that way, and it happened first in Texas, can go into a legislature. They cannot be ejected for causing a disturbance because they're not saying anything. And they certainly cannot be ejected for being dressed immodestly because they are covered from top to toe. So 
it caught on because it's so immediately understandable and because it can place protesters in uh, settings like legislatures and, and they can't be gotten rid of. So I think it was very smart whoever started doing it. Mm. Margaret Atwood, uh, you've been a published writer for over 50 years. I'm interested to know how writing has changed for you over that time. Does it get easier? No, I don't think it gets easier. In fact, it might even get harder. Why is that? Well, I think when you're young and unpublished, you have a great sense of freedom because there are no expectations of you and nobody's looking. Whereas, of course, now, every time you come out with something, everybody's going to look at it pretty closely. And so you do feel that a little bit? A bit, yes. I was reading uh, your recent book of essays, Burning Questions. It included a very sage piece of advice. If you want to be a novelist, do back exercises daily. You'll need them later. Um, It's a great tip, Margaret Atwood. I wonder if there's anything else you think aspiring writers should know. Well, I think they need to be prepared for the fact that they will get bad reviews sometimes. So I think not only the back exercises, but the... um, spine-stiffening exercises, um, because otherwise, and I've, I have talked to people who say they, they love to write, but they're afraid to publish because they don't want to deal with the adverse criticism. So you, you just have to be prepared for that if you're going to be in any, any kind of public art. You know, we were talk, talking earlier about whether you have to write or not, and I guess this would be the test, Margaret Atwood. Would you ever write if you weren't going to get published, if people weren't going to read that work? That's a that's a te- that's a th- something for which we would need a test case. And you it's impossible to do a test case. Too late for that. <laughs> They'll publish it all. Yeah. <laughs> so when I was very uh, young writer, of course, I would I was determined to be published, but the possibilities for doing that in Canada at that time were pretty slim. Uh, so I was still determined to do it. However, I knew very little about the actual business of publishing at that time. And even after I'd published a couple of books, my American publisher said, you need to have an agent. And I said, no, I don't. He said, yes, you do. <laughs> I said, no, I don't. What do I need an agent for? Nobody in Canada has an agent. He said, well, when you come around to feeling you need one, ask me about it. So we really, it was the early days. We didn't have any of the apparatus that that people have now. And although the Adelaide Festival had um, a literary bit attached to it, it was part of a larger festival. I think the Toronto Harbourfront Festival was the first freestanding author's festival. And that was in the 70s. So I started writing in the 50s, long before any of this stuff had come into being. It's amazing to think that you've been part of the publishing industry for so long that you've seen um, all these incredible changes take place. A lot of changes, not some of them not for the best. Um, Publishers have always moaned about everything, but they are feeling a lot of pressure right now. What kind of pressure? Oh, 
Okay, what kind of pressure? It depends on whether it's a big publisher, a middle-sized publisher, or a small publisher. And um, small publishers have the perennial problem that if they if they have a hit, that author will leave to go to a bigger publisher. <laughs> it's inevitable. Medium-sized ones just try to hold their own, but the problem is, of course, that if you expand too rapidly, you're going to have a, a capital gap. You're going to have not enough money to finance your own expansion. And big, huge ones are either dealing with Amazon trying to cut into their profit margins or find that they have overstaffed and then they have to let a lot of people go and then they don't have enough people to do the jobs and then they have to hire more people. goes like that. Mm. Uh Margaret Atwood, final question. Does writing bring you the same joy now that it did 50 years ago? Yeah, I think if it weren't pleasurable in some way, I wouldn't do it. I mean, if, if I were the kind of writer that says what a torment it is with every page, I would stop. But then I would have to have some kind of other job, wouldn't I? <laughs> Maybe and not at 83. That, <laughs> that might not be fun. So not very many writers are self-sufficient from their own writing. And it's a great privilege to be one of those people because I can't get fired. Think of it that way. Margaret Atwood. And you can hear other conversations with recent Booker winners, including Bernadine Evaristo, who shared the Booker with Margaret in 2019, on the ABC Listen app. Just make sure you're following The Book Show. I'm Claire Nichols, and this show was made on Wajak Noongar land. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 